Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's a terrible call. That is a terrible call. It's been a hot minute. We decided not to do an episode during the week due to the tragic passing of Kobe Bryant. We wanted to let everybody have a chance to breathe, to gather their thoughts and get through what was probably a difficult time for all Hoops fans. Thoughts and prayers go out to Kobe Bryant and the Bryant family and all the other families that everybody that everybody lost somebody with during the helicopter crash. Moving forward, Justin can't keep up with the podcast due to time restrictions and due to the difference in time zones between myself and him. So I'll be joined by a good friend of mine, Tim Shields. He's going to be the co-host along with Brendan, who's still going to keep up with his one a week. This should be the last change now. This is a set rotation. I've been podcasting with Tim for nearly two years across multiple podcasts. He knows his stuff. Tim, man, how you doing? Thanks for jumping on. I'm glad to have you with us on this uh, Celtics blood, Celtics pod journey. Thanks very much, man. Uh, happy to be on. Uh, definitely, it's been a tough week with everything with the passing of Kobe, but I'm happy to be talking some Celtics basketball, man. Yeah, and that's what we're going to jump into right now. The somber tone has to change from here on out. So Kevin O'Connor, a former Celtics blog alumni, dropped an article today on The Ringer looking at potential trade chips. We're focusing mainly, if you haven't read it, read it, because this epi- the, the first half of this episode is going to be based around the trade scenario that he put forward during throughout that article, which was Marcus Smart, and I think it was Semi, in exchange for Larry Markinen and Fad Young. With Markinen being injured, he did say maybe sub in Wendell Carter Jr., and there'd be picks going from Boston to Chicago as well. I'm not for it at all. I mean, Smart's smart, so if you want to say he's untouchable, then there's no arguing from me. My perspective is he's tradable for the right guy. I still think he's one he's the heart heartbeat of this team. So if you're gonna trade him, it's gotta be for a, a guaranteed upgrade that's gonna really put your hand on a chip. Uh, that trade don't do that. Tim, what are you thinking on it, man? Because me personally, I'm just hard pass from me, dude. I so when we were playing the Bulls, I was kind of looking at how Thad Young was playing. And I think Thad Young's a nice player too. Um that being said, his contract is pretty massive. Uh, that's why they kind of had him thrown in with that marketing deal. I don't see that kind of deal happening. I don't think, as you were saying, Adam, I don't think moving him for marketing and Thad Young or any other you know young player plus Thad Young is going to be a smart move. Um, as you were saying, Marcus Smart is that heartbeat of this team. The one thing I will say about Marcus Smart that's kind of been a little bit upsetting lately is the amount of shots he's taking. Not necessarily that the looks he's taking are bad. It's just, I think he needs to be moving the ball around a little bit more. He works much better as a facilitator. Um, that is the one thing I think that makes him expendable is the fact that he has one of the bigger contracts on the team. He's got two more years left under team control. Uh, that being said, I think you're better off trying to move him for, you know, a package deal for a better player. Um, I think Markinen is a very good player, but he also is having a down year and having health issues. Um, However, in that same article, Kevin O'Connor mentions the fact that uh, perhaps a player like Aaron Gordon out of Orlando is going to be available due to the fact that 
they've just got so many bigs between the fact that they re-signed Vucevic, um, Jonathan Isaac, who's out for the rest of the year. Um, he's still got a future with Orlando. And they've also got Mo Bamba, who they drafted nearly, what, a year or two ago. So that being said, what are your thoughts on Aaron Gordon? I think he personally could be a player that Celtics could use. I don't see a deal likely, but if you were willing to part with a guy like Marcus Smart and a couple other pieces to make salary work or maybe some picks, or if there's a situation with Gordon Hayward that we're unaware of in terms of what his future holds for him in Boston, is he a piece that you're willing to part with in order to get a guy like Aaron Gordon in the building? So the first thing you want to look at is what Kevin O'Connor put about Aaron Gordon in terms of playing position. During this year, he was playing, he's been playing the three. With Jonathan Isaac getting injured, you would have expected him to slide up to the four, which is, more, which is his more natural position. Kevin O'Connor does a great job in explaining that that would help alleviate some of the shooting troubles he has because he'd get clearer lines to the basket to drive. Completely agree. Can't, can't argue with that point. What you can argue with, though, is whether or not he would actually elevate this team. Now, that depends on who you're giving up. But if you're giving up Marcus Smart, you're losing a guard that can guard one through five, legitimately guard one through five. Then if you most likely Semi's going to need to be put in there, which is another one of your key defensive pieces coming off the bench. I'm up for losing Semi because you've got the defense, defense Marcus Smart gives. Grant Williams is showing an amazing improvement on his defensive ability. And he's earning more minutes in the rotation because of that. In terms of maybe Gordon Hayward, not a chance, dude. Uh, a swap that involved Gordon Hayward for Aaron Gordon would reduce this team's ability to compete. There's not a shadow of a doubt in my mind that that would make the Celtics a worse team. I want to know why you think it wouldn't make them worse, and then I'll tell you why it would. Not why I think, but just why it would. So... I, I do agree in some ways it would hurt the team in terms of their defensive rotations. The one thing that um, Gordon Hayward helps with is just the fact that he's able to hand the ball. He's a great facilitator. Uh, I personally think, in my opinion, he's probably got the best decision-making on this team with the ball in his hands. He's not forcing bad shots. He's always looking for guys to get the ball to. Um, he just plays all around very solid basketball. That being said, his contract situation makes me a little bit nervous. There are some teams that have salary cap space, but I also don't know if he's just going to opt in for one more year and try and cash in next year when more teams are going to have a little bit more salary cap space to play with. Um, I'm also just thinking long-term view, uh, how this team can improve itself uh, in terms of contracts. What can they move? Um, and I I've said for a long time that I think the Celtics need to get some star power at the four and five, um, Aaron Gordon looks like an easy path to that just because based on his contract situation, he's under contract for a few more seasons. Uh, I think he's extended through 2021, 2022. So he'll be an unrestricted free agent in 2022. And right now he's getting about just under 20 million a year. So if you were to move a guy like Gordon Hayward, you could get Aaron Gordon and maybe a couple other pieces to make the money work. Um, but that being said, I understand the kind of drawback from that. I just think that in terms of rebounding, um, a power forward that can not only handle the ball, but get to the hoop, super athletic, young, fits the age demographic of this team uh, with JB and JT playing. I also understand the drawbacks of it. I just, the last thing I want to see is the Celtics getting burned by another free agent situation where you've got a max contract guy walking away and you're getting absolutely nothing in return. 
Okay, so the point where you're saying about the Max contract guy walking away is a fair point, especially after what happened with Al Horford. I'm not concerned about that that much. Gordon Hayward's got an amazing relationship with Brad, and I don't see him. He came to Boston to compete for a championship. This was again pointed out in that exact same, exact same article. There's no one really that he can go to with the cap space to offer him the deal that he'd be looking for where he's going to be joining a contender. The Celtics have his bird rights so they can match. They can go over the cap to keep him. And I think he's just an all-around better player than Aaron Gordon. He can handle the ball. He can rebound, playmake. He can score on all three levels. He does take a step back during games when he's needed to. But when he when the team rely on him to score and to be a primary option, he fills that need remarkably well. Over the last few games, he's been playing great. I think over the last five games, he's shooting. What what was it? I messaged you earlier about it, right? Yeah, I pulled up his shooting stats. Um, over the last six games, uh, he's... 20.7 points per game, 7.3 rebounds per game, just over four assists per game. And he's shooting almost 52% from the field, almost 46% from three, uh, almost 89% for the free throw line with about just over four free throws a game. So statistically right that, now, he's yeah, he's just on fire. The last just off games. that 54-90, bro. Yeah, I mean, he's super close to it. And that's the one thing I will say with, with Gordon Hayward's situation. It's not that Gordon Hayward is a bad player. Um, and he's definitely getting back to that form that he had in Utah. Statistically, it's right there. He's playing aggressive basketball. That Miami game, which we will talk about, um, he looks super aggressive. And I think a Gordon Hayward at that level of aggression on offense and just that smart decision-making that he's already got so instinctively, that can help make the Celtics a legitimate contender. Um, they do need some scoring depth on the bench. Um, whether they get that or not, that's kind of why I was interested in that Ringer article. But that being said, Gordon Hayward's been playing lights out. And I just think even with the, the situation with the contract, he's definitely one of the best players in the Celtics. And I, it's less about moving him because you don't think he's talented. It's more about getting talent at a position of need. Um, it's like the Celtics are in this beautiful spot where they have a plethora of talent at the wing. And that's just... At the end of all, everything with it, I just think it's good to have that level of talent. It's what makes the Celtics such a difficult team to cover. Um, I just hope that they try and get something to help them out, at least from a scoring perspective, and maybe get some size. So when you're talking about the four spot, you did mention that rebounding, he, uh, Gordon's a great rebounder. What I do want to point out is both Tatum and Brown are having great rebounding seasons themselves, both averaging pretty much on seven rebounds a game. Hayward's just below that. Enes Cantor and Daniel Tice have been holding it down on the offensive and defensive glass. I don't see rebounding as a major issue. What I do see as a major issue is a wing that can come off the bench and consistently score from spot-ups and curling off screens. That, to me, is far more important than any big, any stretch four, anything like that. Just some bench scoring that can come in and do, play their role get 6 to 12 points on a nightly consistent basis on minimal shots. That's the key. They need to be consistent shooting off four to six shots a night because that's where the Celtics are struggling at the moment. I mean, Brad Stevens has done a fantastic job in staggering the four guys he's got in Hayward, Tatum, Brown, and Kemba. So there's always two of them on the floor. What's unraveled that is the fact that there's just been an injury-ravaged season. It's very rare that all four have been healthy at any moment in time which is really screwed with the way that he wants to rotate those guys. Same goes for Rob Williams. He wanted to have all three in there. There was a quote came out that 
He really liked where the Celtics were in terms of switchability and different skill sets being able to be brought in at the five. That would have allowed him to use Tice at the four a little bit more as well, which to me, Tice does feel a bit more like he'd be better played at the four, similar to what Al Horford always thought about himself. So to me, the main concern is bench scoring, and that's going to be a lot easier to to fix than going out looking for that big name superstar four or five that can apparently guard Giannis because there isn't many people out there that's going to guard Embiid or Giannis and none of them are going to be available for a package of Smart and Semi. No, no way. And I mean, that's that's also just fair and expected. This isn't this isn't NBA 2K. You can't just sit there with the ESPN trade machine and expecting you to be able to go get a star. That's why as much as a guy like Aaron Gordon would be on my radar, I just don't think that's likely. Um, the only situation that really ever comes to is if Gordon Hayward uh, makes clear to the franchise that he's not going to opt in or he's not going to look to re-sign a contract. But Given the free agency situation, I think it's far more likely he opts in and then you see something after that. Getting back to Rob Williams, uh, I'm not only disappointed, but I'm also very concerned. You know, we haven't heard really much, if anything at all, about Robert Williams since they got diagnosed uh, with that bone edema. Uh, We really haven't heard anything. The last thing I heard was actually today, which was the injury report um, for the Warriors game. And even then it was just, Bonadema out. We haven't gotten any kind of update from a doctor. We haven't gotten a timetable. And at this point now, Adam, he's got to be pushing what? Almost three months being out. We haven't really heard any kind of update from the team, if at all. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I'm operating under the assumption that we'll be lucky if we see him before the tail end of the season. Be very lucky because if we were going at the moment, He's still just out. He needs to go back. And then he's going to have to rehab. He's going to have to get his fitness back, his game time back. I'd expect him to spend a little bit of time in Maine just getting his conditioning right. Because you can train all day long, but nothing replicates game fitness like playing games. So depending on the the opposition and how the other two bigs are looking fitness-wise at that moment in time, it's very likely that on his road to being back in the Celtics rotation, he will spend a bit of time down in Maine. So with all that said, it's going to be a bit of a time until we see him in a Celtics uniform on the NBA floor again. I'd be very, very shocked if we saw him before probably the last 10 games of the season at this point. Do you think that's enough for him to get a good enough run for the playoffs? Like, I mean, he- with that 10 games, I'm assuming that he's already gone through his red claws rehab going you know getting game time down in the g league and he's coming in and then he'll be on a minutes restriction it's not ideal at all but if he can get back to 60 or 65 percent fitness and play 10 to 12 minutes a night on a rotation of the three bigs like we saw at the start of the year then he should be able to maintain a decent level of intensity for that small duration of time on a nightly basis yeah, and I, I think that's really what we're lacking in terms of big man depth. Uh, with Daniel Tice, he's been playing excellent. And as much flack as Ennis Canner gets and as much of a defensive liability he can be, he's done really, really well, especially with the pairing of Tice. Uh, the fact that they're able to win any of these games with either one or both of them out is just impressive. Um, we fortunately have been getting by these teams just based on the fact that we've got so many wings to throw at them and we've got a lot of options on offense, and it's really been a good system team defense. That being said, I can definitely see why Brad is, you know, 
upset about Williams being out because, I mean, he's a young player. He was projected as a lottery pick who fell in the draft due to concern about his knee as well as maturity issues and effort issues, uh, worry about his work ethic. Um, that being said, we saw some great flashes from him in his rookie season, and he looked really, really promising before his injury this year. So it's a little bit more than disheartening to not see him back in the rotation or get any kind of news on him. Um, I'm, I'm hoping and praying that we see him before the playoffs just because he could be such a crucial piece, not even just to go against a guy like Yanis or going against Embiid, but because he gives you a lot of options. Right now, the rotation's kind of been limited by the fact that you need to have Daniel Tice out there for, you know, 20-some-odd minutes tonight. And because you don't have really any other true center to turn to, you're giving Cantor at least 15 to 20 minutes a night too. So how this team has handled it defensively is very admirable. Um, I don't know how it's going to fare in the playoffs. It actually works pretty well when you're going against Embiid. Um, all things considered, Ennis Cantor has done a great job against Embiid. Um, it helps because Embiid and Cantor kind of go same speed at times. Uh, but, you know, I, I still think there's another move to be made there, especially if we're not going to see Rob for a while. I'm still holding out hope that we'll see him sometime this season. The other thing that's been a saving grace has been Grant Williams' ability to play short minutes at the small ball five. It's not going to be something that can sustain in the playoffs against when teams go big. And by no means am I saying that's going to happen. But what I am saying is if you do need to allow Tyson Cantor some time off the floor to recuperate, especially during the playoffs when it's a lot more physical, then being able to switch Grant on if Time Lord isn't available is going to be a godsend. However, it does mean you're a bit weaker at the four, which is where I'd assume you'd probably see Shemi move up depending on the matchup and play a little bit of four, but that's not going to be his primary role. I don't think, I think he's got the strength to do that. I just don't think he has the size to sustain that on a long period during the rotations. It all depends as well. A lot, of this, a lot of this does depend on Time Lord's fitness. It depends if he comes back, if we do see him at all this year. And again, as you said, if any trades get made up to the trade deadline, which I don't envision it being a big, if, that, if there are any moves to be made, maybe the buyout market's going to play, um, play a part, depending if they know, because they'll have, obviously have a time frame in their minds regarding Robert Williams. It might not be something that's been released to the public, but the coaching staff and the front office are going to know, hey, we're not going to have Time Lord ready to go or he's going to be ready to go. And that, that knowledge is going to, fuel whatever moves they decide to make in the trade market and in the buyout market. I, I do think Grant Williams has been playing really well. I honestly also think that if it weren't for the injuries that have kind of struck the, the Celtics at this time, uh, I think Grant Williams would be taking most of, if not all of Shemi Ojale's minutes. We've seen some really good action from Shemi on defense um, and he's looking pretty good, but it also feels like, if it weren't for that, I feel like Grant would be getting even more time. And Grant, you know, as you said before, being smaller makes it really difficult at times for him to go against uh, real true four and fives. Uh, but he's been playing really well. He does all those little things perfectly. He does those things that kind of don't show up on a stat sheet in terms of defense and making the right play and high energy. And he started to slowly cut down on his fouls. He's gotten a lot smarter. I've seen him multiple times go up for, you know, a contested bucket at the rim and he goes straight up. He's not reaching in. He's trying to avoid the fouls and he's just playing just technically sound defense. That is huge just because we needed that kind of player off our bench. And it, it almost feels like he was kind of like the player 
that uh, we expected Gershwan Yabusele to be a little bit, especially from three. He's definitely picked it up after that slow start. I think he was 0 for 29 in his first 29 three-pointers. And ever since then, he's been doing really, really, really well behind the arc. And that makes all the difference in the world as a guy who's coming off the bench. Uh, especially for a contender, you need 3 and D guys. Like you need clean water and fresh air, you know? Um, so that's crucial for them. Uh, that being said, going back to Robert Williams, the last thing that I see on here in terms of just looking up articles on the injury, the last thing that we heard was December 16th, was Robert Williams is out at least three weeks of bone edema, and we haven't gotten any other kind of update. Then there was another article dropped just before the end of the year saying Robert Williams is pain-free and wants to get back in the court. So I don't know why we haven't really heard anything. Um, we're now a month into the new year, and there's still been nothing. So I don't know if they're just nursing it back slowly, but uh, the silence is deafening when it comes to that injury. And the one thing I do want to make sure that everybody realizes is we haven't forgot Vincent Poirier. He just hasn't shown enough in the limited time he's had on the court to be considered a legitimate option once the playoffs roll around or seeding starts becoming a dominant factor in games. He's played respectably, I would say, in garbage time. But if you listen to the podcast I've done with Keith Smith over the weekend, you can't really take any solid facts away from how a player performs in garbage time because nine times out of ten he's playing against other guys that are only getting garbage time minutes too so just because you can dunk on a third string center does not mean you're going to be able to do it on a team starting center or second option off the bench he looks a little bit lost like the game's just a bit too fast for him and that's fine that happens to all rookies at some point the ones it doesn't happen to are your exceptions to the rule Jason Tatum being one of those exceptions. It also doesn't help in a Celtic system where like rookies don't get a ton of playing time. Like we really haven't seen Romeo Langford very much of at all. Um, and it's harder if you're a big man, just because we need the bigs to play minutes. Right. But he also does look really, really slow. I mean, Jay King made a really good point about this in something he put out for the athletic and it was spoke about at length in the Celtics blog group chat. Uh, not going into the details about what was spoke, but I'll go into the details about what Jay King put. So Jay King turned around and said, for a, at a time when the Celtics are so short-handed, to not see Carson Edwards and Romeo Langford get increased playing time or any playing time at all really shows you how much Brad doesn't consider them contributors when he needs to get points. They're not ready to play NBA-level basketball yet because if they were ready they'd be getting minutes, especially while other guys are injured. Tatum's been out. There was a time when Tatum and Brand both weren't playing. You still didn't see Romeo really get on the floor. There's been a time when Kemba Walker's hurt and you haven't really seen Carson Edwards get time on the floor. That obviously indicates a lack of trust from Brad Stevens on those younger guys because Brad's shown that if you're good enough, you'll get minutes. Grant Williams is a rookie. He got drafted in the same class as those other two guys. He's getting minutes. So it's all about the fact that they haven't earned his trust to get those minutes in a game that we kind of need to win because they're coming off the back of a losing streak or they're trying to catch up with the heat that are only that were a game ahead. Now they're only half a game ahead. So not seeing those guys is indicative of Brad Stevens' trust level with them. I thought that was a really good point that Jay pointed out. Um, I liked it a lot. And it's true. I mean, you can expect these guys to pretty much be bench warmers during the playoffs unless unless the matchup leans favorably. 
Carson Edwards was brought in to be that scorer off the bench. That's what everybody was hoping he could do. He hasn't done it. He hasn't lived up to that expectation. And if you listen to any podcast I was on over the summer, I was Carson Edwards' number one fan through summer league. I thought he was going to be brilliant. I was wrong. Hold my hands up. Yeah, dude, I hold my hands up, dude. I thought this guy's going to be the guy to come off the bench and drop 15, 20 a night. It's not happened. Fair enough. Hold my hands up. Yep. And maybe those are the guys you should be looking to move simply because a guy like Romeo Langford, regardless of the potential he has, is always going to be behind Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Gordon Hayward. And, the only thing is, his value is low at the moment. Yeah, well, and, and like you were saying, he's behind all these players. So does that make him more expendable or does it a situation like a Marcus Smart where do you go ahead and move him? you know, in order to try and give these guys playing time. I, just, I mean, I don't think that you're ever going to be, I don't think Romeo Langford's ever going to be able to influence a game at the level Marcus Smart does just no. because of Marcus Smart's defense, right? We're talking about an all-NBA defensive guard here. Absolutely. So that, Romeo Langford then becomes more expendable, right? Yeah, well, the confusing and frustrating part was, like you said before, the other day where we didn't have Tatum and Brown, I'm like, why is he not getting any minutes? He's down, you know, he's up in Maine, rather. He's playing with the Red Claws, and they are undermanned against Orlando. And, you know, I understand you have to play the best players you've got, but you're down to young players at his position, and he's not with the team getting any kind of minutes. They could have rushed him in if they needed him, but they've done the same thing with Taco Fall, you know, I just don't understand that. Trust then that obviously means that Brad doesn't believe that they can impact the game in a positive way. I mean, Romeo's done well in the minutes he's played. He's been super pesky on defense, very active hands. Exactly. And he's shown an ability as a slasher. But mm-hmm. if he, if Brad Stevens doesn't consider him ready or Romeo's not playing within the system the way Brad would expect him to, I mean, we don't know how much of this is down to attitude. I'm not making guesses. But those little things like that are what Brad has to decide because if Brad throws him in and he performs terribly, it's going to be, oh, Brad made a bad decision putting Romeo in. What's Brad doing? It's a poison chalice. And again, I spoke about this on the last episode where if Brad's playing rookies, people are saying, why is he playing the rookies? We need to put the more experienced guys in. And if he's playing the experienced guys, everybody's like, why isn't he giving the rookies a chance? (laughs) It's a lose-lose situation. You can't win. No. I mean, what we're going to do now is we're going to hit a break let you guys get your refreshments, listen to a nice little bit of advertisement. When we come back, one thing I have noticed, and I mentioned this to Tim as well, is Brad's starting to shorten that rotation now. Since he's been doing that, the team has been performing at a much higher level. So we'll talk about what we've seen from that and what we saw on the game against Miami in terms of team cohesiveness and ball movement, etc., etc. So we'll be back in a moment. Eight-man rotation against Miami, dude. Yeah. Eight-man <laughs> rotation. I mean, I mean that's, I'm happy with that. There was a point earlier in the season where he was going 11, 12, 13 deep. Uh, that's fine. Experiment. See what works. See who fits. See what pieces don't fit. Learn who's expendable because as the trade deadline's coming, games start meaning more. You And we've seen this with Brad Stevens, right? Keith Smith pointed this out. For the last two, three years, Brad Stevens will experiment up until just after the All-Star break, and then he'll start making decisions on who's, who are his primary guys off the bench. 
this team's a little bit shallower than what we've got used to. Usually, we've got most, they've got more star power now. So they've got the big four, big five, if you include smart. But then on the bench, they have a lot less weapons. So having an eight or nine man rotation, I'm assuming it will be nine once Cantor's back in. Maybe 10, including Tatum coming back in. That gives them a lot more options to get used to playing with each other to get him to work on how he's going to stagger those guys. He's figured out who works now. Now he's got to figure out how to fit them all together at times during the court. What have you noticed with these rotations slowly being whittled down? I mean, I think it makes clear who are guys who can contribute. You know, I think as we talked about before, Grant Williams is doing well. Um, I think they're getting Shemi involved in the right way, especially with them down um, a couple guys. Uh, I also think it's good that they're staggering Gordon Hayward out there. Um, they're getting some bench guys involved with Gordon out there. I think Gordon has such good court vision. The only other player I think on the Celtics right now that I put in the same conversation in terms of vision is probably Marcus Smart. Um, when those guys are the ones playing and moving the ball around for you is when you're playing your best basketball. Uh, that being said, you know, I think they have to figure out if they're going to be starting Hayward, if they're going to be getting him off the bench. And that might be something that just fluctuates with the matchup. Um, with the way that they're playing with cohesion with, with Brown and Tatum and Kemba on the floor, um, we really need to see what they can do with Gordon Hayward in that mix. Um, as we talked about before, with in terms of health of those guys, we've had so much fluctuation with injuries that we really haven't been able to see all of those guys together. Um, my one question for you is who do you start in that lineup? Do you keep Hayward out there um, with, you know, the Jays, Kemba and Tice, or do you switch, you know, Tatum over to the four Brown to the three smart to the two with Kemba at the one. So I think you start with smart on the bench when all the guys are healthy. And then I think that Tatum, not Tatum, sorry. I think Hayward should probably be the first guy out so that he can run, and I'll put an article out about this on Celtics blog about three weeks ago. Go check it out uh, if you haven't already. And my opinion is you keep, you put smart on the bench. Hey, was your first sub out? You then, once you need to rest the other guys, you bring Hayward and Smart off the bench, have the ball in Hayward's hands more because Smart's liable to just start jacking up. Smart took too many shooting lessons from Mook last year. That's my takeaway. I think that's fair. I think so, that's pretty accurate. <laughs> Flash so dead. You keep, um, my outlook is you keep the ball in Hayward's hands, you have him run point forward. By doing that, you allow him to be a lot more aggressive because he's the primary option off the bench at that point. And it pushes him to get guys open. It pushes him to push it. Pushes him to push. That was a really good way of saying it. It pushes Lovely. him to drive, cause kickouts. And that's when Hayward's at his best, when Hayward's got the rock in his hands and he's really forcing the issue. It also stops him from being used as a spot-up shooter, which I notice happens from time to time during games. And I understand taking a step back to get, let guys like Kemba and Brown and Tatum go to work. But when you've got somebody as talented as Gordon Hayward, utilize it the best way you can. And if that means having him start, having him close out, but then using him as a point forward in that second unit, it also takes the pressure off Brad Wanamaker that's gone through quite a slide over the last month or so in terms of efficiency and output. So that would be exactly how I'd prefer to see him run it. I'm not the coach, but to me that makes the most sense. You can have smart operating off ball, which is where he's at his best. 
You can have Grant Williams operating at the four or the small ball five. Enes Kanter's there for any misses. Gordon Hayward's there to run the pick and roll game, which is what this offense has been heavily predicated on over the last six to eight weeks. And you've got a good recipe for that second unit, and that's the way you're going to shore up their offensive output if a trade isn't made. Yeah, and that has to be the clear-cut way, right? You know, just staggering minutes in the right way. I think you've got the right idea in terms of having Gordon be the first to come off uh, the starting lineup, get to the bench, and also be helping to run that bench unit. Uh, We saw what Brown and Hayward could do together. I mean, they combined 20 for 30 in that Miami game, and they were both just just absolute flamethrowers in that game, whereas we saw Marcus Smart go 3 for 13 from the field, including 3 for 8 for 3. Mook Smart, that's his new name, Mook Smart. I mean, I love Marcus, but I mean, I, I just... I feel like half the time they aren't bad looks, but they're they're bad looks for him, if that makes sense. Like, he's just chucking up, like, way too many threes. Like, there's no reason for him to have that many three-point attempts. You see, I come up with this theory. Uh, I haven't really released it out to the world yet, so I'm going to do it here. If you're listening at this point, if, we've st- if, we, if we haven't lost you at this point, then please <laughs> just tweet me if you agree. If you don't agree, give me some abuse. It's fine. It's, you know, it's what it is. Marcus Smart saw Terry Rozier have one of the most inefficient seasons ever and go and get 15 mil a year. Marcus Smart's been watching Mook just chuck freeze. And then, you know, don't forget Marcus Smart, when he went into free agency the last time around, no team other than the Celtics really made him an offer. There wasn't much interest in him. It was the Kings rumored. Yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> so... Mook was chucking up threes all last year, ill-advised. He had San Antonio. He had the Knicks. He went and got paid handsomely on a one-year, a one-plus-one off New York. Smart must be thinking to himself, yo, if I just chuck up some threes, raise my efficiency a little bit, or just hit at the same clip but on more attempts, I might get paid on my next go-around. And to me, that could be, even if it's a subconscious driving point, there has to be something from a personal aspect that's driving him to put the ball up as much as what he is because this that's when he's at his least effective. When he's chucking like that is when he actually hurts the team. I saw a tweet on Twitter during the game against Miami saying, Marcus Smart, the uncanny ability to keep both teams in a game at any given point. <laughs> it's true, dude. It's rough. I mean, he also ended up having... Uh, eight rebounds in that game, four assists, but he also had four turnovers. So it, he does a lot of stuff that just won't show up on the on the stat sheet, but also he does a lot on the defensive end. Um, that is like the one reason that he is stuck around with the Celtics, I feel, is because he's just this like passion, passionate player, like this little ball of chaotic energy that just gets unleashed on defense. Um, and that helps you overlook the fact that he takes some ill-advised shots. You know, he had a couple looks, and one of them was like an off-the-screen three from the top of the arc, and it was like a few seconds into the shot clock. And I'm like, look, I, like I get you're trying to get your own. Everybody wants to go get their buckets. And he, to be fair, he was, you know, one three away from being almost 50% from behind the arc. But he was three for 13 on the game. You've got Hayward. You've got Jalen. You've got Kemba. Like, those are the guys who should be carrying your offensive workload. And – I understand that whole idea of shooting threes to keep defenses honest. And to his 
point, you know, teams have been covering him. It's not like he's just, you know, Ben Simmons where everyone's giving him, you know, five, six feet of clear airspace for him to chuck up. But at a certain point, you have to look at how you fit in that system and where your role lies. I think when he's dishing the ball because of his court vision, there's just so many other looks that get, you know, closer to the basket who get, you know, people at t- to the line for free throws. He he just is able to create so much better for other people than he is to be able to create for himself. So I just don't – I'm hoping that it's just a phase and they talk to him about it, but it, it's kind of been a weird trend where he had this great shooting season last year and, you know, he had a career – he has like this career shooting season where he's putting up his best numbers offensively. And then this year it seems to just be – going in the opposite direction maybe it is something subconscious like you said where he saw guys like Terry and Mook go get paid after just literally just chucking the ball up for an entire season that being said he's still under contract for this year and next year and then he'll be a free agent but which means he'll be chucking it up more next year than this year which is a concerning thing which is like the one thing that you could be like that's an indicator of potentially what the future holds you know like that's it's why the Celtics really have to be careful in the way that they approach this trade deadline, just not even just outside of Gordon, but also with smart and how this team plays and what they're really lacking. So the one thing you did mention was his assistant turnovers were equal four assists, four turnovers on Canale, a very nice little fun fact for you. Hayward and Bran also managed the exact same feat. All three of them had the exact amount of turnovers as what they did assists. That's nullifying your offensive scheme to the max. We're going to assist and then we're going to turn over. It's frustrating, but look, I was a big fan of the way the Celtics attacked the Miami Heat off ball. So much so, I used it as my analysis piece in my article. They were really doing a great job of cutting. They were curling off picks. They were, when the Miami Heat went zone, they attacked back door, they went trapped. A lot of points came off backdoor cuts when they were going zone. When they were playing man-to-man, it was very pick-and-roll heavy orientated. The one thing I've really been impressed with over the last two to three weeks, and Cantor's done this exceptionally well, and now Grant Williams seems to be running it as well, is they operate a slip screen. So they'll they'll use the pick-and-roll regularly until the big man starts to show on the pick. As soon as they start doing that, it's up to the... It's up to the Boston big to recognize the show and slip. Now, Enes Kanter is exceptionally good at doing that. If you watch him, the minute he sees the defensive big show, he slips. And it's led to a lot of good passing lanes and a lot of easy buckets down low. Grant Williams done the exact same thing against Miami four or five times. Didn't always get the finish, but he did use it to open driving lanes for guys like Jalen Brown. Gordon Haywood was a beneficiary of those show slips quite regularly as well. So that's something to keep an eye out because if they can use that, utilize that regularly, because with a team with as many playmakers as what the Celtics have and with a guard as quick and explosive, not explosive, but quicker and nifty as Kemba and then explosive guys like Jalen, when you're running a pick and roll, if you're doing it at the top of the key, they're going to show. They're not going to ice because there's too much ground to have to force you one way or the other. So they're going to show. Once they do that, if you can hit the, the big man that slips, it's going to be easy buckets all night and easy kickouts to the corner freeze. So that, to me, has been probably the best takeaway from that Miami game. We saw it as well against the Lakers. They were slip screening there too. 
I think that was more because AD was just coming back off, a, off an injury than it was system design. But to me, that's definitely, definitely look out for that again when they play the Warriors, which will be tonight. So when you hear this, it would have happened. I'm going to be counting how many times they slip a show. Uh, maybe you can too. There's no Willie Cauley-Stein on the Warriors anymore. Yeah, and that was actually one of the first trades that went down, except I think maybe Crab happened before that. So Just for a um, pick, dude. People were talking about giving up like Semi and some picks for Willie Cauley-Stein. Brendan was having aneurysm when he was reading those oh, suggestions, yeah. dude. Well, I mean, he yeah. Well, if you talk anything about Willie Cauley-Stein, it's very much a uh, harrowing experience for Brendan. I um. I think given that, you know, it kind of helps set the market. The one thing that ever holds the Celtics back in any situation is taking on salary, but they really came out against Miami and just punched him right in the teeth. Um, to Miami's credit, they kept running it back. Um, at one point, I think Miami had a two point lead in the second quarter. Celtics came back and took the lead and then they never gave up the lead the rest of the game. Um, Jimmy Butler is doing a ton for Miami. So that was really fun to watch. Um, and this was an undermanned Celtics team going on the road. Uh, going into a tough place to play in Miami and having to go against a team that they're most likely going to have to play in the playoffs and that they're jockeying for seating right now with. So that was a good win. And it also really was good to see Gordon Hayward and Jalen Brown show out combined for 54 points. So with the defense being the way it is, uh, I, I really hope that they try and get someone who can kind of help them on the perimeter a little bit too. Um, just because I think they need a little bit more mobility. I think the one thing that Tice does um, so very well is he manages to keep guys um, towards the perimeter and not getting lost when they're cutting to the paint. He's always there to contest, yeah. That's going to wrap us up for today. I want everybody to keep an eye out against the Warriors for two things and then definitely message me because you guys will be watching this game while I'm sleeping. I'll be waking up at midnight your time to watch the game before I go to work. That's if you're on the East Coast. Um, so hit me up, drop me some messages. Let me know, one, if the rotation was as good. Or actually, you can't hit me up because you'll be listening to this after the game. So hit me up tomorrow <laughs> once you've heard this. Let me know if the rotation, what you thought of the rotations, how many deep did they go? Are you happy with it? Are you unhappy with it? What are you looking for them to change? And two, let's keep an eye out for those slip screens. I want to be raving about them for weeks. It's a really smart play. It takes a highly offensive IQ, a high basketball IQ to operate that slip screen and hit the guy that's rolling to the rim while you're under base, effectively a blitz. So I do enjoy seeing that. And we'll catch you again on Monday. It should be me, Brendan, and Tim for that one. So you're in for a treat. And we'll catch you then, guys. Tim, thank you for joining us. Guys, you can follow Tim at Tim, what's your Twitter handle, dude? <laughs> Return of the boy. Maybe I need to change it. <laughs> Return of the boy. See, and boy is spelled B-O-I. Yep. <laughs> Go follow Tim on Twitter. Uh, he puts out some good stuff sometimes. Make sure you're following me because I'm <laughs> awesome. And we'll catch you again later in the week, guys. Peace. Later.